Section three of Mrs. Diamond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Mrs. Diamond by Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie. Book one, chapter three, Coffee. Oh, friend, I know not which way I must look for comfort, being as I am oppressed. W. Wordsworth Shall we follow the letter? A villa once stood on one of those long roads that lead from the Arc de Triomphe at Paris to its dependent villages. These long, dull roads are planted with poplars and lime trees, and seem to become straighter and more dreary with every succeeding revolution. The villa itself was in a garden green and roughly tended, that put out its straggling shoots and blazed with marigold heads. The four walls were white and green and sweet with vines within, sun-baked without, and stained with the dust that skirted the highway. The gates opened upon the boulevard, they were painted green, faded and blistered by the sun, the whitewashed wall was decorated with a half-defaced inscription, in strangling black letters. Via du Parc, Appartement Mueble, Parlez au Concierge, S.V.P. The house had been named after its original proprietor, whose widow made a living by letting her two pavilions to persons in want of salubrious and furnished apartments, ornamented with beautiful mirrors in the vicinity of Paris. So ran the advertisement. I am of Scotch origin myself, and I have English connections, little Madame du Parc used to say. The Miss O'Shea's have been with me these five summers. Madame Muldoon and her niece come to me every winter season. They have now sent me La Famille Marny, who inhabit the North Pavilion. The South Pavilion is very well let to a patient attending Dr. Pujat's water cure. There is no house more sought after than mine, says Madame du Parc, looking round with pride at the signs of habitation. There is no room empty but my son's in all the house. The house stood in a pleasant place, overrun, as most French gardens are, with straggling beds of nasturtiums. There were pansies, very purple and splendid, and snapdragons and lupins, and white and lilac phloxies, sedulously flowering in odd corners. The paths were roughly laid with stony gravel and sprinkled with fallen leaves. Iron chairs were standing here and there under the trees. There was a plaster statue in one corner and an iron table. The air came fresh from the bois and the open spaces at the back, and of evenings and mornings the garden seemed full of voices and the scent of flowers, while the echoes of the rumbling and itinerant life in the highway outside would be sometimes enlivened by the music of soldiers marching past. One evening a little company of people sat drinking coffee in the garden of the villa, looking like any one of those groups which you may see assembled behind the railings which divide French interiors from the outer world. It was after dinner time, and the coffee cups were set out on the little iron table by the plaster mercury. Two boys were rolling on the grass at play, a little girl was stooping to caress a dog, an elderly gentleman with a grey moustache sat at the table occasionally talking to two ladies with work baskets, while another man, younger and more portly, stood with his back against a tree, discoursing in a monotonous voice. 
some faint clouds were slowly trailing their lonely rose-colored vapors across a serenely burning sky there seemed to be a perfect peace in the silence overhead a peace sometimes dreamt of by tired people resting for a while before becoming again tired the orator under the tree went prosing on he discoursed warming to his subject at great length and with some monotony the old lady at the iron table had been briskly exclaiming for the last ten minutes and trying to interrupt the orator pishing pshawing waving her arms she had sparkling black eyes and a shrill voice which was to be heard all over the house having said her say to the ladies she now swiftly turned upon the gentleman don't listen to him colonel cries the old lady to the good-looking elderly gentleman who had been submitting with a somewhat dissentient expression to the harangue mr marney he write for journals and his business it twist everything round do hot and ba or he have nothing to write about my son write for journals sometimes but he never show me his articles he is too much ashamed of himself and those friends liberators and agitators they are a good-for-nothing set who won't work and like to talk and to talk i tell denise to shut the doors on their noses you must not confound every man who loves his country in the same category with your son's friends madame said the orator concealing his annoyance at the old lady's interruption he spoke with a slight irish accent here in your fair france questions are complicated i allow that it is scarcely possible to foretell from one day to another what the consequence may be of giving supreme authority to any party but with us in ireland it is not so it is not a case of brother's hand red with a brother's blood but of a country groaning under the rule of the egyptian says the gentleman talking louder and louder for he saw the old lady preparing to interrupt again yes colonel the sorrows of my most unhappy country and his voice toned to a different note are the sorrows of a whole nation crying aloud for a tardy justice these i feel from my very inmost soul my heart bleeds when i hear those in authority speaking lightly of the wrongs such as ours and i do not exonerate you colonel diamond honorable gentleman as you are from the charge venet fox said the little girl who had not been listening and as she moved away the little dog set off scampering after her and the boys with a shout ran after the dog your country my country patriots patriotism i don't care one sou for your patriots cried the old lady shrilly le pays de honnes gens that is my country do not let us wander from the point my good lady said the orator impatiently waving his hand personalities have nothing to do with a great idea when the wrongs of a generous race rise before our legislators in their seats in parliament crying aloud for justice it is the duty of every man to give them a hearing you colonel are not one to turn aside from the cry of the helpless mr marney paused for an answer the colonel started somewhat confused he had been disturbed by the barking dog and the boy's stampede and he had lost the thread of mr marney's remarks oh uh, certainly not but i didn't get into parliament you know it cost me a great deal of money said the colonel recovering himself i have not paid it all off yet michael takes it all to heart as very few people do said mrs marney proudly looking up from her crimson bale of wool if everybody did as he wishes things would be very different mrs marney thinks that as the wife of a political writer she has a right to her say said the orator good-naturedly and loftily accepting the tribute 
I won't engage to maintain all your opinions, my dear, but as to making a pudding or darning a stocking, I don't think there's many could give sounder advice. He said it in a jaunty, affable way. Mrs. Marney's dark eyes brightened with pleasure, and the colonel made a courteous little bow. It was at this moment that the children came scampering up with the evening post, the faithful little dog barking at their heels as usual. "'Here's a letter for you, Mamma," said one little boy. "'What a funny black letter!' "'And here's a letter for you, Papa,' said little Dermot, the youngest. "'I've two! I've two pretty letters,' said the little girl in French, dancing after them, and she gave them both to the old lady, who pulled out her glasses to read the addresses. "'Why, you silly little child, that is for Monsieur le Colonel. "'Ah, here is Max's writing. This is for me.' What a shocking hand he writes, pâté de mouche. Please remember the postman, said the little Dermot, holding out his cap. Be off, said his father crossly, and he flung him a penny out of his pocket as he spoke. Little boy shouldn't ask for money, said Madame du Parc, looking up before beginning to read. As for Mrs. Marney, she had torn her letter open and was so utterly absorbed in it that she did not heed anything that was going on round about her. Another time she might have anxiously followed her husband, when he suddenly walked away crumpling up his correspondence and thrusting it into his coat pocket, but she did not heed him, nor Madame du Parc's vehement exclamations. "'As usual,' said the old lady, "'Max, he put me off. There is his room, ready, water in the jug, clean sheets on his bed. Denise have been all the morning clearing out the potatoes. We take all this trouble, and now he writes that he will not come till next week.' I shall turn him out when he come. Oh, it is too abominable. Come, Marie, come with Marraine. Let us go and tell Denise that she need not give herself any more trouble. And the old lady took the little girl's hand and hobbled off, talking through the darkling garden, and disappeared. Her voice died away, scolding in the distance. Mrs. Marney sat on, with her head resting on her hand and the tears in her great eyes. The colonel had pulled out his glasses and was also too much absorbed in his correspondence to think of anything else. It was a disastrous post. Mr. Marney's tailor's bill was the least unwelcome letter of the four. The pencil lines written by poor Susie in her sorrow had reached her mother. Tempe's indignant protest was in her father's hands. The poor colonel read it, re-read it. He could not solve the riddle nor make up his mind about what was to be done. Tut, 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 he said beating his foot in perplexity. He had himself a great admiration for Fanny Bolsover. She had ruled his wife, and she now ruled him. It was unlucky that she had not got on better with the young folks. Tempe, he feared, was vehement, and yet he could not quite disregard all she said. He folded the letter with great exactitude and put it carefully away in his pocket. Then he took it out again and unfolded it once more. The evening was closing in, and he could not see Mrs. Marney's troubled face, nor the tears which dropped quickly on the paper that was lying in her lap. Tears do not show in the dark as they do in the sunshine, and men do not guess as women do at the things which are not put into words. The unlucky colonel, in his perplexity, suddenly determined to appeal to Mrs. Marney for advice. She was a kind woman. She had children of her own. She would understand a girl's feelings where he was at fault. It was an inopportune moment that he chose, poor man, to open his heart to his new-made friend. He began deliberately at first, and speaking, I fear, to very inattentive ears. "'Mrs. Marney, may I have a few minutes' conversation with you? 
I ought not, I know, to trouble you with my affairs, but perhaps you, who are kindness itself, will excuse. I have, alas, no right to ask anyone to advise me now, he continued in a plaintive voice. He forgot that the late Mrs. Diamond had been the last person he ever applied to in a difficulty. You, he went on, are a mother, a good, devoted mother. Then he stopped short, quite frightened by the sudden outburst he had unwittingly called forth. He looked up, and the words failed him, and he saw for the first time that she was in distress. Oh, do not speak to me like that. No, no, not that, not that, she said with a sudden irrepressible flood of tears. Oh, do not say such things to me. See, Colonel Diamond, my child wants me, and I cannot go to her. She is in trouble, and I can do nothing to help her. And the poor, overwrought woman hid her face in her two hands that were trembling. The colonel was startled. He was a kind-hearted man. He was quite taken aback by such trouble. Oh, it is a cruel thing to part from one's children, she went on, choking her grief and recovering herself little by little. Everything comes in to divide one in after days. How can I go to my poor darling? Where is the money to take me? How can I leave my home? Oh, Colonel, I sent her to her father's people, thinking I had done for the best. But it is never the same, never the same. And she looked up piteously, with dark eyes shining through her tears. The Colonel sat listening, and very confused, and yet not unsympathizing in his confusion. He began gently patting the iron table by way of soothing the poor lady. Two trains of thought were going on together in his head, an unusual thing for the simple-minded man. In all his sympathy for her, he was still pondering over his own perplexities. Yes, she was right about the children. She had helped him unconsciously to make up his mind, and now he began to wonder if he could do anything to help her. He wanted to see her face smiling and unruffled as usual, not all changed, stained, suffused as now. He felt very shy for a colonel, but he presently began. Will you excuse me, Mrs. Marney, if I speak plainly to you? I can unfortunately do very little for anybody. I seem to be always going to others for assistance, and you have helped me more than you have any idea of. But there is one way at least in which, perhaps, you would let me simplify your difficulties, and if, if a small advance, say fifteen or twenty pounds, would be convenient for your journey, would you give me the pleasure of feeling that for once I have been of some little use to a friend? He laid his hand on hers as he spoke, and she, with a sudden grateful impulse, caught it and raised it to her lips. "'Oh, how good you are!' said she. "'Don't, don't, my dear lady,' said the colonel. "'I have a daughter myself.' Here is Mr. Marney coming. I will go for the notes at once, he added. And I beg you will not say another word. Indeed, the obligation is mine. He hurried past Mr. Marney with a friendly sign as he walked towards the house. Mrs. Marney's grateful eyes seemed to look into his, her grateful voice to be in his ears. When the colonel returned with the notes in an envelope, he found Mr. and Mrs. Marney still standing together where he had left them. They were waiting for him and talking eagerly. He had hoped that she might have kept the transaction to herself, but she had evidently been telling her husband. The colonel was shy and held back for a moment, but Marney, certainly, perhaps from habit, was equal to the occasion, and made things easy for all parties. Colonel, he said with emotion, flinging back his coat, I am a man of few words, but as long as I live I shall never forget your goodness to my poor wife and her girl. 
thanks to you we shall both be able to hurry over to our poor child in her trouble you have done a noble action sir and one that you will like to remember when you are yourself upon your uh looking back at your past life whatever his future reflections might be the poor colonel seemed very uncomfortable at the present moment when marney held out his hand he did not immediately put the money into it but merely shook the outstretched palm then going up to mrs marney he said good night and thank you in a low voice and raising in turn her hand to his lips he respectfully kissed it leaving the paper in her fingers she did not speak she looked at him with a curious puzzled grateful expression in her beautiful eyes and he walked quickly away there goes a good honest well-conditioned old gentleman said marney approvingly how much is there mary and where are you going to put the money i shall take care of it you may be sure said mary smiling and slipping the envelope into her pocket you had better let me keep the notes for you said marney and he spoke in perfect good faith perhaps there may be more than we shall want for this journey how much did he promise you polly she hesitated still i think he said ten or fifteen she answered looking at him in doubt why do you want the money now dear marney turned with a sullen stare make haste said he don't keep me waiting let us go into the light dear and count them she said tremulously still feeling in her pocket when they got to the room mrs marney with a pale face gave the envelope to her husband who exclaimed cheerfully the old fellow is better than his word there are four hundred franc notes polly sixteen l hurrah for the colonel and then when she was alone once more poor mary still with a pale face and feeling as if she were a thief in the night pulled out one last hundred franc note which she had kept back from her husband and she looked at it and hid it away carefully between the leaves of her bible later in the evening she went upstairs to the bare room where her two boys lay sleeping and sat down by the big bed looking wistfully at the little round brown chubby heads they were like their father and yet they reminded her somehow of her own people too little michael turned and opened his brown eyes wide smiled at her and then dropped to sleep once more little dermot lay sunk warm in the pillow oh might they grow up good men upright truth-fearing men not as she was not as their father was her husband whom she loved with all her heart's passionate devotion but whose faults were clear to her aching eyes she prayed for commonplace things for her children not for heroic achievements but for daily virtues hard work truth uprightness mamma mamma said little michael struggling to break through the spell of sleep that divided him from her my darling my darling answered the poor mother softly so as not to arouse him and she bent over him and once more her tears flowed but they were gentle and more happy then she went downstairs to make her arrangements with madame and the two stood talking on the landing and recapitulating all the details of the daily history the soup for the little boys the directions for the washerwoman the girl who was to come in during mrs marney's absence mrs marney fetched her hundred franc note it was to pay for these necessary expenses and also for a certain proportion of the rent that was owing the moon rose and the two dark figures prosed on and on in the moonlight well i would not cross the sea not even for my good-for-nothing max said madame but you are right to go and do not be uneasy about your children has monsieur marney gone to the station to make arrangements i will not wait up any longer at my age one is weary when the night comes i wonder he is not back said mrs marney 
"'It is a long way to the station,' said Madame. "'Good night and good-bye.' Mrs. Marney said only good night, and she went and stood at the window watching. The moon was streaming, and the dark clouds were drifting and hurrying along the sky. The clock struck eleven. She went and fetched a shawl and wrapped it close round her and sat down at the window again. After a time she fell asleep and woke up as the clock struck one, and hour after hour passed and struck as she waited. And then, early in the morning, Marnie had come home, declaring he had been robbed. He had been cheated, he said, and then suddenly he became piteous, contrite, abject in his entreaties for forgiveness. On his way to the station he had turned into a café, and there met a patriotic acquaintance who, alas, persuaded him to look in for an hour at a place not far off where, unluckily for Marnie, one of those fatal green plains was spread where dice are sown and bitter crops are reaped. He was tempted and, as usual, instantly succumbed. When he came away in the early dawn, one five-franc piece was all that remained of the colonel's advance. And then, as usual, Mary, after being angry, forgave him, making some absurd excuses to herself, and having forgiven him, the next thing was that she tried to console her heartbroken husband as he lay with his head comfortably buried in the sofa cushions. Poor thing! What a life would hers have been had she not been able to forgive! He was ruined, he said. It had been of vital importance to get him to London. He deserved it all, he sobbed. As he became more desperate, she was more pitiful. Would he even go now? Would he fetch Susie and bring her back? There were fifty francs still left, which she had kept back for the children's expenses. Madame had the money, but she would get it back, and so Marnie allowed himself to be consoled and sent off on his way. End of section 3